3: and
2: their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzu Vine for April 11th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always, Catherine Smith.
4: Greetings from Atlanta.
3: And welcome to the show, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, good to
2: have y'all in. Sorry, I can't seem to say the date. Um, but hopefully it'll go a better from there. Uh, tonight we're excited to have coming on our uh, probably fourth or fifth appearance now from Catawba College in North Carolina, Doc, Dr. Michael Bitzer. Uh, Dr. Bitzer, he's going to come on. He's going to talk a lot of North Carolina politics with us. But during the election, we had him on, and he hinted at a chapter in a book he wrote about It was a book about the Simpsons and a lot of the cultural impact, and he wrote the political chapter for that book. So we said we want to get you back and discuss that, and we're going to discuss that with him in addition to all the Tar Heel state politics. So we're excited about that in about 20 minutes, Um, but until then, we've got all kinds of things to talk about. And one thing on Twitter and elsewhere – actually, probably Parler, and then it gets on Twitter – is all of the companies that the um, right has started boycotting. Now, of course, they complain about cancel culture, yet they have canceled the most bizarre list of things I've ever seen. And I saw several graphics during the week, but there is a red, you know, kind of no-smoking sign faded out with, I'd say, somewhere between 25 and 30 companies listed in front of it. And I don't want to steal anybody's uh, – as we go through, we'll talk about some of these. But some of these, I'm like, I'm not even sure why they're boycotting these companies because it says boycott companies that support BLM and rioting, which, like, I, I just had no idea, you know, where these came from. I, I missed these companies. Um, and so I thought we'd take that graphic, and each of us would um, – tell one that we thought was the most bizarre, you know, why, if we did a little research and put it together. And, um, Catherine, you said you had one ready. Uh, Which one did you pick as the most bizarre?
4: Well, the one that I found the most interesting or or, uh, bizarre was that um, uh, oh, now I can't remember the name of it. Um, The Ben and Jerry. Like, have they not been boycotting Ben and Jerry's forever anyway? I mean those, that company is was founded by, you know, these Uber progressive guys and they've spent they've been, you know, making brands with progressive and liberals forever. And they've spent a lot of their money um demonstrating or, or protesting against military budgets and I just thought it was funny that they would ever be on there. I mean, that anybody really still – that anybody on the right still buys their ice cream.
2: So I thought
4: that one was unusual.
2: Yeah, these people, it doesn't matter. They they can keep a boycott going for something, you know, a decade old. Tim, before you tell me yours, was yours Pop-Tarts?
3: It was one of them, but I have
2: others. (laughs) Okay. Well, I just want to illustrate to Catherine how hardcore they are. I just started looking. I said, well, you know, why are they boycotting Pop-Tarts? What did the toaster pastry company do? And I still couldn't quite figure it out, but this started in 2011. Every reference to the boycott of Kellogg's, which is the parent company, started in 2011. So I mean, obviously, someone was saying Black Lives Matter back in 2011, but this was, you know, before Trayvon Martin, before you know, a lot of the the, the first, you know, round of of those uh, incidents that happened that um, w- would have, you know, put this in the forefront. Not even the second round with George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey and, and the events of 2020. So that's how long core. Uh, some of this, you know, nonsense will go on. Well, Tim, you said you've got several. Tell me about some of yours.
3: Well, I found it. You know, for years the the left has has been has been yeah yeah and about Chick Fil A. Uh, uh, Chick Fil A this, Chick Fil A that, and and the right has been saying, well, we'll show you, we'll we'll support Chick Fil A, we'll go spend our money there and eat. Well, now there's a group of them saying, no, we were just kidding. Let's boycott Chick-fil-A. And I'm like, what in the world? Uh, What paradox universe are we in here? And it has to do with transgender rights. They made the mistake of saying, you know, that, you know, transgenders are people, too, and they should have the right to medical care and stuff like that, like other people. Oh, no, that wasn't the thing to say there. So now there's a group that wants to boycott Chick-fil-A from the right. Um, what, what you got, David?
2: Okay. Uh, well, well, one of my favorites is the fact that not only Coca-Cola, we know Coca-Cola is coming. They're, um, they're uh, sites recently but Pepsi's on there so no sugar caramel water uh for the right um w- which is kind of funny but you know I looked and saw that Gorilla Glue and Pornhub were on there and that uh Ted Cruz was leading uh, part of the boycott against Gorilla Glue I was secretly hoping that he had used the two products together and that was why but apparently not um no, I, I'll, and I'll just get to the Gorilla Glue And I did not look up the other one because I thought, no, tell them what I'll find out that will be on my browser history. And I like my job, so I won't um, go there. Right. Um, and so I looked up Gorilla Glue. And so apparently a few months ago, and I heard a little bit about this, there's something called Gorilla Snot Gel. And it is for hair care. It's, uh, it's to really hold your hair in place really nice and stiff, and I'm not a hair care person, so that may not be the proper um, verb there or or adjective. But somebody was just not familiar with the Gorilla Glue line of products, which, you know, I think that's kind of odd, but then I probably do a little more handy work than this lady did. And so she just didn't know about Gorilla Glue and that it was literally glue. It wasn't Gorilla gel. So she puts Gorilla Glue in her hair. And the Gorilla Glue, of course, you know, causes major damage to the point where it was a medical issue. And so Gorilla Glue, the company was like, you know, of course, no liability because, you know, glue wood together. Don't glue your hair. But, you know, they were, said this is some ways you can get it out. I think they, um, there was going to be some money raised for her. They may have paid for some of it just as goodwill. I mean, once again, no culpability, no liability, just trying to be a good citizen. I felt felt sorry for the lady, and um, then there was apparently um, some GoFundMe-type activities. The lady – my daughter actually had heard about this. Mercedes knew a lot about it. Apparently, like let's say she incurred – and I'm just going to use a figure – $10,000 in medical bills. When all was said and done, they had raised like $50,000, and so it appears that the lady may have profited money – ...from the incident, and some people were mad that this person had manipulated things. At the end of all this, Gorilla Glue manipulated nothing. Gorilla Glue benefited financially in no way from this, but because they helped this person – by the way, this person was African American, and I think that's how deep-seated a lot of this racism is. They just didn't like the fact that they helped a black woman – They put Gorilla Glue on the list, and I mean, how spiteful! I mean, you know, as weird as a lot of these protests are, Gorilla Glue did nothing wrong in any way, shape, or form that they would be boycotted. So I thought that was a very, very bizarre one. Um, Tim, Catherine, do y'all have more? Well, yeah. (laughs) How, Tim? Go ahead. Well, I
3: mean. The bank, let's just grab a a major corporation. The Bank of America. Oh, everybody hates banks, of course, right? And uh, I'm sure this bank has done something awful. Well, the awful thing they did was they just made a statement like everybody else about voting rights. Well, them and, you know, half the people in the country did. So they don't even contribute to political candidates are political parties. That, that that I mean, that is their rules at Bank of America. They, they don't have anything to do with politics. Oh, that don't matter. We don't care if you're political or not. We're going to boycott you anyway. So there's a group that's wanting to boycott the Bank of America. Of course, I'm sure the Bank of America is not worried about uh, two dozen people in Eatonton, Georgia that might say we're not doing business with you. But still, I think it's just foolishness that you want to boycott someone who isn't even involved in politics.
2: (laughs) Yeah, um,
3: uh, another
2: weird one. New Balance, Adidas, and Nike are all on the list. I mean, uh, when does Puma make the list? They'll be walking around barefooted at some point. Um, Catherine, any others that you saw? Uh,
4: None others that I thought were, you know, that surprising you know they're the usual suspects amazon ikea you know starbucks like
3: i mean well, where are these yeah. people going to shop well they were like going to stop at a swedish
2: on. company anyway
3: <laughs> yeah would somebody like to explain lego to me what are we doing going oh, after yeah, that the kids now Yeah, making sure they don't grow up as hardcore liberals or something for using Legos. What are they talking about? Every kid of a certain age down wants that under the Christmas tree. Um, I've I've got a grandson that just loves Legos, uh, collects the thing, builds giant towns with them, that sort of thing. Why are they after Legos?
2: I, I don't know. I doubt it's about the artist Weiwei that the Lego Corporation wouldn't sell uh Legos to him for a art political art project against China. I doubt that's it. Um but I do know that that's one of the few political things I've ever heard Lego did. I don't know why, you know, um they're on there. I, I love LinkedIn's on there. You know, like LinkedIn is like of all the social media companies, like they're the most like you know least controversial usually people put more job stuff like i got a new job i got a promotion you know paul put some other stuff but it's it's far less political than facebook and twitter and others so i thought linkedin was an odd one um and, and by the way yeah what did pepsi do we don't coke what what did pepsi do anybody have any ideas? now you got me there i
3: thought i thought the the guys in the state legislature, we're making a big show of drinking Pepsi in public to thumb their noses at Coca Cola,
2: right? Yeah, I thought so too. I think I think they ought to just go back to tap water, you know. And but then they're going to find yeah. out somebody put those pipes in that one time did something controversial, and they won't be able to drink your tap water either. And Tim, talking about your banks, what you do is you get you my pillow. And you shove your money under there. Um, that way it'll be safe under my pillow.
3: I was about to ask you a question. Why is it okay to tell Coca Cola to shut up and stay out of politics? But the my pillow guy, he can do any and say anything he wants to say. Why is that okay? It's if, it agree,
2: if they agree with you, and that's and
3: that's really yeah. everything.
2: It's uh, do they agree with me? Um, and it's gonna and everything's gonna be stratified. Where you know it, what's the shoes you wear and the TV shows you watch and the bank you go to and the, TV, the news network you get. Whatever, everything's uh, gonna be like great. that's right or left. Everything's gonna have a blue or red connotation uh, that's about great. it. It is well. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're going to see. It was. I think sports. We're talking about. You know, it's going to get that way where you know only Democrats are going to watch the NBA, and then only Republicans are going to watch NASCAR. You know, it'll be it'll be like that at some point.
3: Catherine, I I bet you know some folks like this, but I know quite a, 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 a few folks. I love Barbara Streisand, great one of the great singers of all time. There's people that absolutely refuse to listen to her because of her politics. I bet you know some people like that, don't you, Catherine? Um,
4: Yeah, well, I'm a little bit like (laughs) You know, when I was growing up, we did not watch movies with John Wayne in them. We did not watch movies with, um, uh, I can't remember anybody else, but John Wayne, I've never seen a John Wayne movie ever in my life.
3: Well, that's um, too bad because you missed some great acting.
4: I know, I, I know. Um, but I I have that, I mean, there's music that I prefer not to listen to because I have a negative, imp, a negative impression of the performer. It's unfortunate, honestly. Like, it's something that was um, kind of, I was brought up with. And you know how hard it is to shake some of those things. But, um, but yeah, I, I think people feel like, you know, there, uh, it's it's around that whole, you you know, you're voting with your pocketbook.
0: So,
3: yeah. but if if you boycott, I've always thought that if you personally boycott things, say in the entertainment industry or sports figures or stuff like that, you miss out on so much good stuff. Charlton oh, Heston yeah. made them. Some- Charlton Heston made some marvelous pictures. His politics, especially late in life, were just nutty. John Boyce is saying, well, he's a great actor. Um, weigh in, David. <laughs> yeah,
2: no, I no, it's, uh, it it's, it's going to be unfortunate that there aren't going to be common things in life that can't be more apolitical Well, let's talk about another topic We've got about four minutes before we get deep into some great talk with our guest Mike Pence, they, they announced that Shimon, Simon & Schuster has given him a book deal And it's a seven-figure book deal Now, um, I don't know what the current going book deal is for different politicians but I have to think that when he was talking to Simon & Schuster, he um, had to say, look, I'm going to get real on a few topics. And we're going to have to come back to, uh, to Mike Pence's book deal um, after our guest. But I want to welcome back into the Kudzuvine Dr. Michael Bitzer. Welcome, Dr. Bitzer.
1: It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation.
2: Yes. Well, um, I, 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 when I booked you for this show, and I told you, um, I, and we started discussing topics, and even way back last year, I said, next time we get you on, we've got to hear about this Simpsons and Politics chapter <laughs> you wrote for a book. It's been, it sounds like a decade ago, but the Simpsons have been on 30 years and running um, now, um, Tell us just first of all about the book and and how it all unfolded in the chapter itself.
1: Sure. Well, the book is called Homer Simpson Goes to Washington. And it's a definite play off of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And it's the idea that we can look at popular culture, TV shows, movies, uh, even music. And look for themes that are relevant to American politics. And it's a great book. Whenever I teach Intro to American Politics, I use it oftentimes, although some of the material now is very dated, particularly the chapter that I write about with The Simpsons. But it's, it's exploring different themes, different ideas that can help students relate to American politics in different ways. And so the chapter that I wrote about is about political culture and public opinion. And I call it the American dream on Springfield's Evergreen Street. And what I try to do is introduce the concepts of political culture, which political scientists have done a lot of research about. Uh, give them a sense of what we as political scientists think about public opinion. How does that shape and influence uh, our American politics? And then I try and bring in the idea of, well, there's this thing called the American dream. And how do we see it through the satire of the Simpsons TV show? And I've even created a course for our first-year seminar program called Homer's American Odyssey. And it's basically uh, satire, society, and the American dream in The Simpsons. And so it, it's kind of been a pet project of mine. I grew up on The Simpsons. I think the golden age of The Simpsons was really the first ten years of, of the episodes. But I think it has so much relevance to what was going on in society at that time and still is very much a reflection, even a satirical reflection, of America and particularly American politics.
2: Yes, I think you and I are similar ages. I was in college when The Simpsons started, watched it pretty much every episode the first decade. Then I had this big decade in between I didn't watch. And then we got a DVR, and it automatically recorded everything on primetime, including The Simpsons. (laughs) And so for about the past 10 years, I've seen probably all the episodes of The Simpsons again.
3: And so um, I'm
2: very thankful for the DVR. Well, when you were on the show last time, you, you had mentioned the book, and I texted you something right after, and we kind of had a little back and forth on this, um, not disagreeing, but Mike Pence. A lot of people think Mike Pence is Ned Flanders. I purport <laughs> that, Ned, that, um, that Mike Pence is actually Smithers, uh, Mr. Burns' um, subservient mm-hmm. um, assistant. <laughs> Do you think Mike Pence is more Flanders or Smithers?
1: Oh boy, that's a great question. Um, you know, he's got attributes of both. Uh, you know, Ned Flanders is just this this constant, you know, positivity. You know, look at everything through through bright lights and you know, charm and whatnot. And but but then you've got Smithers, who very much. Was kowtowing to whatever His boss, Mr. Burns, would say And I think that There are, you know, reflections If I could split the baby In half um, in, In both characters I think, you know, the way that the writers Approached their Subjects through a Cartoon is really Just indicative of The power that they have Of observing our society And yes You know, 30 years later, could a character or characters of a TV show be relatable to the former vice president of the United States? I mean, I'm thinking of the one episode where Lisa Simpson becomes president, and she is confronted with some major crisis. Uh, It was a budget deficit or something of that nature. And, you know, her aides are all talking about what she needs to do and how she needs to approach it. And finally, President Simpson says, thanks, President Trump, which, you know, indicates that she was (laughs) elected right after Donald Trump. I mean, this was back in the 1980s and the early 90s for this to come out. Uh, So, you know, it it is a show that, you know, does – does last in terms of its legacy and its impact on on picking at society and and making points that that maybe we need to be much more cognizant about.
2: Yeah, here's what amazes me about that, that back in the, I guess, 1990s, that the writers of The Simpsons would have predicted that Trump would be that crappy. I, I'm obsessed with president because, uh, you know, putting him as president is one thing, but realizing he would be that an abject failure way back then, that was pretty clairvoyant. Let's talk about Lisa Simpson. She's pretty much the same character from 1989 till today. She's, she's mm-hmm. changed very little. Now, back when they first wrote her, she was woker than woke. But America yeah. and the political landscape, particularly the, the – the, left half of the political landscape has moved to Lisa Simpson. She's now kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. mainstream, you know, democratic politics as much as a fourth grader can be, um, to be fair. Um, Isn't it interesting or what's your thoughts on how Lisa Simpson's been able to kind of predict the change of America?
1: I I think that that's fascinating because I, I think it is that generational dynamic that is playing out. I mean, almost, you can, you can think of certainly uh, both Homer and Marge as classic boomers, you know, in, in terms of their generational identification. I would probably put Bart in Gen X, just because of his cynicism, just because of the way that he approaches, uh, you know, life in that regard but maybe Lisa Simpson is the reflection of millennials and now Gen Zers, uh, you know, of, of a real shift in terms of generational attitudes that I've been looking at over the past several years, particularly based on uh, information and data from the Pew Research Center that shows millennials and Gen Zers are very much more to the center left, then, say, boomers who were more center-right. Gen Xers tended to be very much in the middle but slightly lean to the right. Uh, you know, maybe maybe she is the epitome and the recognition of what a generation now who is under 40 coming into American politics is all about. I think a lot of her early issues were identified. And, you know, even though these, these millennials and Gen Zers were, were bol- not born but you know were, were very young, maybe that influence did play something in, into it. I don't want to read too much into a cartoon character shaping a generation, certainly, but we know from all the data anybody under the age of 40 is definitely center-left in terms of the overall generational dynamics, and it reflects who and what Lisa Simpson is.
2: Yes, and I have to fact check myself I said fourth grade, fourth grade is Bart Lisa is perpetually even though she's one of the smartest characters on TV, she's always in the second grade Um, so I (laughs) I hate that I messed that up and I think you're right, I think she is a millennial uh, and Bart I guess would be the oldest of the Gen Z's, or the youngest of the Gen Z's, and she's one of the older millennials probably about the age of Pete Buttigieg if she had aged Sure. Um, One final question, and this is rapid fire Okay the first presidential election um, would have been 92. You, you don't have to do every election, but how would Homer Simpson have voted in as many elections from 92 to two, 2020 that you can predict?
1: Wow. Okay. So 92, he probably would have related to Bill Clinton, um, so he probably would have voted Clinton um i could see him voting for clinton again in 96 i think he flips and goes george w bush just because of you know the beer drinking you know that that kind of attitude that that he saw in both 2000 and 2004 i wonder if he would have flipped to obama in 8 um and then boy 2012 I, he might have with with obama but then i i I can see him being a trump voter i could see him being a very classic obama trump voter uh what happens in in 2020 uh maybe even for homer simpson maybe trump's four years was was four years too much and he flipped to to joe biden and and the scranton boys so uh you know Scranton and Springfield, I could see very much in in identification possibilities.
2: Well, theory one, Homer likes the winner. theory two, we waste billions of dollars on elections if we could just get Homer Simpson's vote, whichever party we could just campaign strictly to Homer Simpson and ball game um.
0: Exactly.
2: There it is. Um, Well, I'm going to pass this off to Catherine. She may be so into The Simpsons now, who knows, but I think she had prepared some North Carolina questions. Catherine? Sure.
4: Hi. Nice to have you on the show tonight. I will admit that I am not a Simpsons watcher. Um, I have this thing about um, comedies. I find that they're not very funny. I like to go back to the... (laughs) the heyday of comedies like, you know, The Odd Couple and That Girl and Mary Tyler Moore. So I not I'm not very well versed in The Simpsons. So we're I'm not gonna have any questions for you on that. But I am I am interested in the reapportionment in North Carolina and just sort of the reapportionment across the country because of these um these dramatic delays in the census and how this is all going to play out for 2022 and any special elections in 2021.
1: Yeah, I I I think all, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I I think we are all just, you know, waiting for both the reapportionment and then the redistricting process to kind of unfold Uh, with the reapportionment, at least here in North Carolina most likely in, in Georgia and some other southern states. Uh, we will see at least one additional congressional uh, uh, seat awarded to North Carolina. That would bring us up to 14 seats uh, just because of our population growth. We're now well over 10 million uh, citizens in the state. So I think, you know, the, the dynamics that we're all watching as political scientists when it comes to the reshifting or the reapportionment of congressional seats is from the northeast to the south into the southwest and particularly i think the the big winner is probably going to be texas with three congressional seats new congressional seats being awarded potentially to to that state so you know that that not only means congressional delegation numbers increase but also means electoral votes increase as well. And we're continuing to see that electoral dynamics shift to the South and to the West. When it comes to redistricting, you know, I, I studied under Chuck Bullock, who is is probably one of the premier Georgia uh, analysts of, of politics in the state, and he has written a, a second edition to a book that he calls Redistricting, the most political activity in america and you can thank north carolina for the most recent partisan gerrymandering decision when the u.s supreme court in rucho v common cause kicked basically the federal government or federal courts out of trying to decide partisan gerrymandering controversies they said it was a political question that it needed to be decided by the states or by independent commissions. And here in North Carolina, what immediately happened was after that federal case basically shot down federal involvement in partisan gerrymandering cases, it went to a state court. And a state court decided, no, partisan gerrymandering was too much in this state. It violated our state uh, state constitution's free and fair elections clause, so I think you'll you'll continue to see partisanship really being driven in this next round of redistricting, but as you indicated, the census data is going to be so late that we're likely to continue with any special elections under the current district maps for the various open seat house seats. Uh, that will be holding special elections, and it could get pushed into 2022, which is the first major election cycle that we generally tend to have after redistricting. So, uh, you know, a lot of people are kind of waiting for the data to come out, which will come out probably in August or September, and then all bets are off, the gloves come off, and whoever's in charge of redistricting really gets to set the tone and the dynamic, typically for the next 10 years.
4: Yeah. Well, what are your thoughts about, um, about nonpartisan, you know, independent, uh, re redistricting commissions? You know, there's always been a lot of talk about, it. I think there's a few States that have those. Um, there, are. there's yeah. a couple, there's a couple, um, uh, legislators in Georgia who have tried to push that, but of course have had no success <laughs> because, you know, it, sure. It's one of those things that, you know, the party in power wants to keep the power and the party that's not in power wants to change it. But then as soon as, if, if that power changes, then th- they don't want to give it up either. You know, so it's, it's really hard.
1: It It, it is this self-interest in american politics that drives so much of redistricting uh you know when when you're when you're allowing individuals to basically have the power to determine who their constituents are i think that that's the at, at the core of it is really the problematic aspect yes both parties do it uh when north carolina's case went up to the supreme court it was the republicans that had done it here in this state at the same time another case was joined with the north carolina case that was out of maryland and that was when the democrats had partisan gerrymandered their districts so both parties are guilty of it maybe it's the last true bipartisanship that we have in american politics <laughs> and i think that the real push behind the independent redistricting commissions is to take out the power of those who hold office already to draw their own districts. Now, you can hand it over to independent commissions. Uh, You know, it's hard to find truly nonpartisan or independent-minded individuals in today's political environment. The other thing that I oftentimes talk to people about redistricting is the fact that, you know, while the map drawers have power, you know what? We have sorted, we the citizens have sorted ourselves. Uh, In in a study of of North Carolina's precincts, I have found close to 80% of the precincts across the state are basically voting overwhelmingly for one party over the other. And so when you have people who have sorted themselves into like-minded communities, into like-minded areas, it doesn't take a Ph.D. in political science to draw a map that's going to favor one group over the other, because the people have done a lot of the work already. And they have also done a lot of the work in terms of their voting loyalty, in their voting patterns. So you get consistent voting patterns out of precincts that tend to favor one party over the other. The map drawers just basically have to draw the lines and and pack certain precincts together or divide precincts from other like-minded precincts, and boom, you've got redistricting basically done courtesy, a lot of it, from the voters themselves.
4: That's a really that's a really interesting and important point to make, that that we, uh, you know, we sort of self assign ourselves. Well, that was very helpful and informative. So I'm going to pass it to Tim, and if it comes back around, I may have another
3: question, but I'm not sure if we'll have time. So go ahead, Tim. Sure. Good evening, Dr. Bixer. Thank you for being with us again. Um, My pleasure. You know, we have ourselves a fifty-fifty Senate. In this country, and so any competitive seat is going to get great notice from far and wide. And as it turns out, Richard Byrd is going to be stepping down in North Carolina. Um, is there a favorite among the parties? Are they coalescing around any particular candidate Or do we have a mad rush in both parties of 10 or 12 candidates seeking this seat?
1: You know, this is going to be – even though we're on the West Coast, this is going to be the wild, wild West, I think, of the 2022 campaign cycle in North Carolina's Mm -hmm. U.S. Senate race. I think that the way that both parties' primaries are shaping up right now – They are both reflective of the core issues and dynamics and differences going on within each party. And I'll give you a brief overview of how I'm seeing things kind of play out. On the Democratic side, I think for the most part, North Carolina Democrats have generally tended to put forward moderate, classic uh, middle-of-the-road, statewide Democrats who can win. I would point to somebody like Jim Hunt, somebody like Mike Easley, and currently Roy Cooper as governor. Those are just very classic, kind of down-the-middle, moderate Democrats. When Democrats tend to go more center-left or more left, uh, they don't tend to do as well. Someone like Deborah Ross last ran against uh, Richard Burr. But I think what we're seeing play out in this state is much like what you're seeing, have seen play out in Georgia, and that's the potential Stacey Abrams effect, for lack of a better term. Can you Mm -hmm. have a minority person of color candidate play up that core base within the Democratic Party and still be able to Prevail statewide. I think that's going to be the real test because we've got a candidate, a state senator by the name of Jeff Jackson, who kind of sits in that moderate middle of the road Democrat versus a potential former chief justice of the state Supreme Court, Sheree Beasley, who is an African-American woman. And I think that that party is going to have to kind of settle its internal dynamics, who and what the North Carolina Democratic Party is. On the Republican Mm -hmm. side, it's basically going to be who can out-Trump everybody else. And, you know, the big speculation is will Laura Trump, uh, the president, former president's daughter-in-law, throw her hat into the ring? You know, it's kind of hard to beat a Trump with with somebody by the name of Trump, and so I think that that dynamic, with some of the already announced candidates like Mark Walker uh, and potentially Ted Budd, two members of Congress, you know, they're going to be playing to the North Carolina Republican Party that is very much now the Trump Republican Party in this state. So both parties are going to have a real fight on its hand. And then the general election is going to be a battle for control of the Senate. Generally, midterm election years, U.S. Senate races tend to favor Republicans. But, you know, it's a new day in North Carolina politics, and I'm not going to even try and predict what's going to happen in a year and a half.
0: Mm -hmm.
3: How wide is the gap in North Carolina between rural and urban voters it, it's huge it's linville
1: gorge huge uh, I, uh-huh. I would I would contend um, it, it and, and, and again it goes back to that sorting dynamic that Democrats mm-hmm. generally tend to do very well in urban precincts uh, Republicans have basically solidified but not to the levels that we would think in rural North Carolina because there's a lot of particularly in the eastern part of the state uh majority minority counties so that kind of depresses republican overall turnout in surrounding suburban counties in the state based on my research that's the most republican counties in the entire state they went for donald Mm -hmm. trump by over 60 percent the battleground is in urban areas urban counties but outside of the central city, outside of Charlotte, but inside Mecklenburg County. And in 2016, it was basically a 50-50 split. In 2020, uh, Joe Biden won by four percentage points in those areas. And North Carolina is just very bitterly divided. The parties have sorted themselves. The voters have sorted themselves. They've become party loyalists. And the state overall is extremely competitive, but when you start breaking it down by regions, it's lopsided one way or the other. Um,
3: Now, you know, we've talked about this a lot on this show, and and a a lot of pundits have maintained for several years that North Carolina was going to be the perfect candidate to be the next. Virginia, if they were they, they were going to do just what the state of Virginia yep. did, trend blue, certainly before a state like the one I'm sitting in, and yet exactly. in 2020 it was Georgia and not North Carolina who went blue. Why has North Carolina resisted the trend that has happened in Georgia?
1: That that's a great question, and I think for a lot of political scientists who study Southern politics, that was that was the domino. That you know, Virginia would fall, and then North Carolina fall, and then we'd skip over South Carolina because that's a whole other case study in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And then Georgia would fall, and of course, Florida mm-hmm. always being uh, competitive. Um, North Carolina is very much inelastic, meaning that both parties, when they get energized get to a certain threshold where it's basically 48-48 on both sides. And that last two to four percentage can flip the state one way or the other. And if you look back at 2020, a lot of people tried to understand why did Donald Trump and Tom Tillis for U.S. Senate, both Republicans, win North Carolina, and then Roy Cooper, a Democrat, won as well. And that is a historic pattern in this state that has been that way since the 1970s and the 1980s in that North Carolina generally tends to be Republican red at the federal level and Democratic blue at the state level. And what is happening since 2008 is that the state has become more competitive, much more evenly divided. But it only takes, you know, a couple 10,000 votes to go from red to blue. And and I think last year in, in the 2020 election, it simply played out to historic legacy. But I think it was still very, very close. Georgia was very, very close as well for both president and the two Senate races. So it's hard for me to say a state is blue or red, like North Carolina or like Georgia, I'm more prone to describe it as purple with a red tint or purple with a slight blue tint, more so to capture the real nuances that both states present.
3: Mm. Well, I thank you for that, Doctor, and uh, I'm going to pass it back to David? David?
2: Yes. Well, I would
3: like to ask you
2: one more political question, and that was – in the past few weeks, I believe it was Republican pollster – I know it was Republican pollster – Glenn Bolger came out with a report, and I, I believe he was the um, pollster for um, Tom Tillis. And he said if uh, the, text, the text affair controversy mm-hmm. would not have happened, Cal Cunningham would have won. Now we know Donald Trump won North Carolina. Roy Cooper won North Carolina. One race each way, so it's not clear to me that that would be the case. But you're in North Carolina. Is that correct, or would Tom or Cal Cuttingham would have lost either way. You know, it, it's I, I can
1: see how if that issue had not come about, that probably suburban voters. Would have stuck with you know uh, Cal Cunningham in that context. Um, you know a lot of people poo pooed you know when when that news broke and said, well it's it's not going to have any major effect because the numbers are are so steady. But it's it's like I described. It's that few ten thousand, twenty, thirty, fifty thousand voters that can move an election from one column to the other. And I I just think, you know, the timing was just so poor on the Cunningham side. And then his response, which was basically a lack of response to it, uh, really did not probably do him any service or favors. And I think that, you know, the, the way that it played out, Nobody here who was really watching it was surprised because the polling got so much closer as the election came along. And when you have a you know, forced error like that kind of thing, that can be the deciding factor that flips it one way or the other. Candidates matter in elections. And I think that's the struggle right now that North Carolina Democrats are trying to confront is do we want that kind of moderate centrist or do we want somebody that will stand up and be kind of the the voice of the opposition? I think that that's going to be the, the primary battle on the Democratic side for next year's Senate battle.
2: Yes, and, and related, um, you know, you had people obviously voted for Roy Cooper and voted for Donald Trump, mm-hmm. voted for Roy Cooper, voted for Tom Tillis. Unless you just had all these people that didn't vote, but it just one race. Um, so therefore, let's say there's this group of voters they voted for um, uh, Roy Cooper. Then this scandal caused them to switch, and they end up not yep. voting for Cunningham. Had they voted for Cooper and Cunningham, would they have then decided to go straight ticket and voted for Biden? Did what I'm saying is, if you know the Republican pollster is correct, did this cost? Joe Biden enough votes in North Carolina that it could have flipped the state?
1: It it certainly could have. The dynamic that all of us were not ready to deal with and had no idea what would happen is the increase, the sheer, huge increase in the electorate. We went from 4.7 million in 2016 votes being cast to 5.5 million. And we've never seen that kind of escalation of the number of voters participating. I mean, I thought we would easily hit 5 million. I was thinking, okay, if we hit 5.2, man, that's just going to blow everything out of the water. Anything above that, it's anybody's guess. Well, we ended up 5.5 million, and I think that that's the way it played out. It was anybody's guess.
2: Yes, well, I'll tell you this. If Springfield is in North Carolina, then we know Homer Simpson voted for Roy Cooper, and he may have uh, voted for Donald Trump if it's in North Carolina, and then that scandal may have cost Homer to switch based on what you told I, us earlier. I, I
1: think, I, think I, I certainly can see that playing out. I can't prove it quantitatively, but gut, gut instinct and a, and a can of duff beer, I would say, yeah, that would probably be the way it played
2: out. All right. Well, Dr. Vincer, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and we want to have you on again. And, of course, when, you, when you're on again, whatever happens, we're, of course, going to call back to this uh, Homer Simpson thing you've done tonight. Um, but it's been a thorough joy, and I think the Tar Heel State is going to continue to be competitive and thus continue to be fascinating.
1: It will be. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks again for the invitation. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir.
2: Thank you, sir. All right. Dr. Michael Bitzer of Catawba College, uh, just one of the most intriguing guests we have on. And and the Simpsons thing is uh, just really uh, just clever, um, you know, that he got involved with that project. And so now let's go back to this Pence thing. Mike Pence gets this seven-figure book deal. I mean, that's real money, even in in 2020 dollars. To me... If he does the book version of, say, his debate performance, you know, who wants to read that? That's not interesting. That's not going to move books. No one's going to really buy that book, and Simon & Schuster will lose money on it. Do you all think, like I do, and I'll go ahead and say what I think, that Mike Pence had to um, commit – to telling some real stories in this book about different parts of his four years in the vice presidency, including uh, probably a little bit of real talk on January 6th. Catherine, what do you think?
4: Well, I don't know how book deals go, so I can't really
2: speak specifics. But
4: I would think that to get that kind of advance or that kind of book deal, you need to – Make some you know promises to make it making it enticing, whether that's um you know inside base inside you know track information about you know the four, his uh four years <clears throat> as vice president or some or something about like the future of the of the republican party or something but it's gonna it's gotta be um uh juicy in order to get that kind of money.
3: Yes.
2: Tim, your thoughts on this book deal?
3: Well, I, I know that, that compared to some other people like Biden, for instance, Pence's deal, believe it or not, was not as lucrative. Um, I think he got the deal because he's Mike Pence, who happened to be Donald Trump's vice president. Uh, I, I don't know how many promises he had to make. He probably told him, you know, I'll I'll tell the truth as I, I remember it, and you know, certain things I can't tell. But but you know, uh, if he just tells, for instance, the story of what happened on January sixth from his perspective, where he was, man, that would be a great story by itself. But I don't think he had to. Really uh, go overboard making making promises. I think he was off of the deal because of who he is.
2: Yeah, maybe I just don't see him being the kind of guy. Just in the Mike Pence story, really moving a lot of books because he's not popular with the Republican base. And unless it's this juicy tale, I don't think the other side's gonna you know buy this book or just the more apolitical folks. They're not going to buy this book, so somebody's got to, you know, um, purchase this thing to make it worth it. Unless Simon and Schuster just thinks it's valuable to have the publishing rights to the, you know, the the former vice president's book. Um, It's interesting because I remember you remember when Hillary Clinton got the book deal, uh, and it was you know a seven figure deal, and of course that was in two thousand. Um, Dollars, uh, maybe even $2,002, you know, it was somewhere in there, and she got it. And I remember on Crossfire, um, you know, Tucker Carlson, and and this is the Tucker Carlson from that day, not the one now, um, and he said, you know, oh, she'll never uh, make that money back. What a horrible deal. That it was some kind of, you know, it it was either stupid on the publishing part or it was almost like a, a kickback in some ways. To give Hillary Clinton that kind of money. Um, and she ended up selling that many because he said, I'd eat my shoe if he'd ever did it. And then she was, of course, incredibly gracious and brought a shoe cake out for him to eat. Um, he probably would, doesn't <laughs> – The 2020, Tucker Carlson doesn't deserve that. Uh, but the, the one back in the early 2000s, I guess, did. Um, and it showed, you know, it was a great moment for her. But I remember them talking about that book deal. And, and I, like I said, I know this is different dollars, but it just doesn't seem like, you know, Mike Pence is not going to move, you know, book sales like, say, Hillary Clinton would.
3: Um, well, Catherine, oh, Tim, you still have something to say. Yeah. Yeah, I just want to say Mike, Mike Pence is not the type. That's going to uh, trash Donald Trump in his book. He he just isn't going to do it. That's not, that's not who he is. He's just not going to do that, right?
2: Yeah, maybe not. I don't see it either, and especially they say he's gearing up for 2024, and if he trashes him, whatever chance, and I don't think it's much, it's right. gone, Um you know, I don't think he's risking anything. Um, I think his chances are probably worse than Dan Quayle's when he ran in 1996. Um, Catherine, I, for one, think Karen Pence's book would probably be a little more interesting because I think she actually has a <laughs> harsher opinion of Donald Trump, is more, probably more willing to tell the truth, and might be wanting to actually own a house because, you know, the Pence's, um, apparently they were became homeless on um, January. 21st of this past year um you know i'm sure they had a few nickels to rub together for a hotel room on hot wire um but you know they literally did not own a home when they left the vice presidency
4: well i think the other thing we can think about is what else mike pence could write about you know he's a you know a, allegedly a big strong man of faith he could write a. Uh, um a book that's more inspirational instead of storytelling. It could be about mm-hmm. his um his you know faith journey, his marriage, mm-hmm. um and what he what his vision is for America, sort of like the um visionary books that uh President Obama has writ- wrote mm-hmm. uh I think Bill Clinton wrote they usually you know it's not uncommon for presidents to write them. So it it could be that they're looking for a book that will appeal to more than political people, that it will be a more inspirational and um, aspirational book rather than a political book.
2: Yeah, I, I tell you, um, I mean, if he tells his story, I guess there's something there. I doubt his story is as good as some others, um, just because he, he probably you know, just had a more – you know, vanilla lifestyle. And i tell you, I've listened to all three of um, President Obama's books, and, and Dreams of My Father was excellent. Um, Promised Land was was very, very good, and that's the first half of the presidency uh, running for office. But Audacity of Hope, um, not nearly as good as the other two, uh, in my opinion. Well, but, um, but so I don't, I don't know. It'll be interesting to saying.
4: see. I understand what you're saying, but I don't know that um, while we might not be interested in a – um in this vanilla book. It might be very inspirational to a lot of people who see their lives as very ordinary to read about a man who also had an ordinary life but then, you know, became vice president. Like, and so I, I think it's um it's hard to know what um what Simon and Schuster was looking for. Is it uh, and what, um, what kind of um, story or um, wh- what, what Mike Pence has in mind for what he wants to write about. So it will, I think we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, we will tell about it. I hope they can get a little home to live in. I'd hate to think of them, you know, <laughs> living in Airbnbs. Yeah, I I, I, I I think
2: think that you know the the book deal is part of that. Tim, last thought.
3: Yeah, well, Catherine makes a good point here, and I go back to the 1970s. Charles Colston, of course, the ultimate uh, hatchet man and fixer, and all in the Nixon administration uh, was offered a book deal, and everybody said, "Oh, here it comes!
0: Here it comes!
3: He's going to kill Nixon." And what we got instead was Born Again. And and it was about Colston's journey from the darkest areas of his life, uh, how faith basically saved his life. And you know what? The book was magnificent. It was just a, a wonderful book. And I would strongly suggest that for you political book readers to read that one. So... Catherine may be right,
2: David. It may be that kind of book. Yeah, it, it may be. I mean, but then would you go to Zondervan or uh, one of the um, Trump books, I believe, is one of the um, Christian booksellers, and kind of do that angle where you're you would have been in the old Baptist bookstores uh, that no longer exist, um, you know, in storefront like they used to. Um, but well, I the, don't I mean,
4: think it has to. I don't have, think it has to be evangelical or even um I don't think it has to be evangelical to be um gripping and um interesting. It can just be about his faith and how yeah. the, you know, yeah. I mean look at look at Jimmy Carter. He writes about faith all the time but it's not yep um it's not uh so steeped in religion that you have to be person of faith to appreciate it, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah,
3: yeah. And, and Jimmy Carter's churned yeah. out so many books. Um, Do, and me he's a been favor. Quite Do me a Perfect. favor, David. Do me a favor, David. You listen to books all the time. Find Born Again and see what I'll, you think of it. I'll, I'll
2: see if I can squeeze it in. I tell you what, I did get on hold in the past week. A man of the House, or Own the House. Uh, by John Boehner, I've heard some really interesting huh. reviews on it oh, um, So wow. I, I plan to listen to that one Well, it's been a great show And uh, next week, we'll have been on the air 15 years Or I guess on the internet um, Would be the better way to say it uh, One of the, I guess, early political podcasts um, Going around So we're going to celebrate 15 years next week And until then, it's been the Kudzu Vine Good night, guys Good night, night guys. Hi, everybody We are the heirs of that first
0: revolution. For a strong and united America...